Before we begin then, let us pay homage to the infinitely virtuous one, the infinitely, the infinitely compassionate one, the most magnificent one, the unblemished, supremely enlightened Lord Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa How's that plan going? You didn't think I'd forget, did you? A promise is a promise is a promise. So, I'm going to keep reminding you just to make sure that you haven't forgotten because it's easy to forget that. It is for some people, it's easy to forget. Sometimes it is because of their temperament, sometimes it's because people are just far too busy. And uh, you can't spare a second thought. Such is life nowadays. We tend to forget our duties, responsibilities, what we need to do for others as decent human beings. It's easily forgotten sometimes. So we'll keep reminding you and I will expect that you will continue to keep making an attempt. Yes, never give up. Perhaps it's not today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in another year, sometimes maybe after they're gone, who knows. But we keep on trying. See, the thing is, a lot of people are really concerned about making sure that they attend to their past parents after they're gone for, I think, mainly two reasons. One, that's the kick up the backside they get, a reminder, oh, I just I forgot I have parents, right? But when the inevitable happens, then you're reminded that you had parents. So at least now you need to do something about it. And secondly, I mean, if it's the first, then at least you feel that, okay, at least now I need to do my duties and my, serve my obligations. But there's a slight issue with that. That is, you know, your parents are only your parents in this world. Once they're gone, you can do all the, you know, the dolos pirikara and all those offerings and that. But remember, they're no longer your parents. You can earn more merits by offering them a glass of water while they're alive than offering arms for seven days and seven nights and then transferring your merits to them after they're gone. Because once they're gone, they're no longer your parents. That is determined by Vipaka, 
So we'll come to those ideas and concepts, and I'll explain how that works in, in the future. But for now, it is important that we understand that whatever we wish to do with our parents and for them, and if you know the understanding that you have that when you do for them, you earn lots of merits, that, that is only true while they're your parents and while they're alive. After that, you learn merits, but remember, for the amount of merits you earn is determined by two factors. One is on your side, the other is on the other side. That you cannot control. It's like two factors which, whose product gives you the answer to a, a multiplication sum. Or you, you could even consider it as a, a, you know, levers and how they work. You may have learned them for physics. A third class lever. So if you, if you consider this a lever, then you have the fulcrum here, yeah? Now, if you want some work done, you can, let's imagine you've got some weight, you've placed some weight over here, a body with mass, and you want to lift it, right? You can make this easier by moving the fulcrum, right? So if you move it closer to this end, right? then you need to exert less force on this side. This is a physics lesson. <laughs> you need to exert less force on this side because it's force times distance that gives you the energy that is translated onto the other side. Whereas if you move it closer to this end, you need to exert a, a lot of energy on this side to make small movements on the other side. Right? So these are third class levers. So your practice of the path, as well as the meritorious power of the, or the, or the, uh, the virtue of the other party. So these are factors that determine how much merits you can earn. So let's consider one of them, for instance. Your understanding of the Dhamma is a bit like how close this fulcrum is to the point where you exert your force. The further you move this closer to you, right? Yes, the force, now ignore the force. I'm, I'm, now I'm talking about displacement, okay? With short movements on this side, you can make massive changes on the other side, right? So think about a broom. When you hold the broomstick and you sweep with it, if you bring your arm closer to, the, to this side of the, uh, of the stick, short, small movements on this side will make huge movements, sweeping movements on the other side. But if you move it further down to the brush or to the bristles, then you need to make large movements on this side to make small changes on the other side. So this, how merits and demerits work is also similar to this. This is analogous to, to that. As you understand the Dhamma, you bring that fulcrum closer to you. Now I'm not talking about the force, I'm talking about displacement. So ignore the force part, okay? Small movements on your side. So small things you do will reap you huge rewards on the other side. You understand know what I'm saying? You only need to make do small things. Like say, for instance, uh, you've offered a gilampasa or maybe some water to the Swaminansa. If you did it as um, a sotapanna, you would have earned some merits. Now ignore whatever... The Swami Nuhan says, whether it's a Prutagjana or a Sotapanna, ignore all that part. 
you as a sotapan has offered this water answer this question with your understanding of the dhamma you go on to become a sakudagami a once returner have you not increased or magnified amplified the amount of merits that you earn by making the same offering exactly the same offering you know like for like it's the same glass of water to the same swami nanda on the same day just the very moment have you not increased the amount of merits you earn now you have it's simply because of your understanding of reality so what you've done is on this side no change you've just moved the fulcrum closer to you small movements here make massive movements on the other end so this is if you like the the displacement on the other side is the amount of merits you've earned in this example and the same goes for the virtuous power of the other party so there also if the person you are offering to is of a higher spiritual power or higher spiritual attainment better understanding of the dhamma and so on you earn a lot more merit but that you can't control you don't you can't control at what rate i understand the dhamma so the best thing to do is not to concern yourself with whether the swami nanda has attained uh, noble fruits or not instead of doing that offer it to the mahasangha because even an arahatan nanda is below in virtue than the mahasangha to be honest even the buddha is because it's the buddha included in the mahasangha so the when you think of the mahasangha it includes the lord buddha therefore you remember on one occasion his stepmother came to offer a robe on which occasion she pleaded with uh, the venerable ananda he was his uh, chief attendant and uh, several requests were made by mahaprajapati please can i make this offering to the lord buddha and on multiple occasions the buddha rejected the offer and said no ananda ask her to offer it not to me but to the mahasangha so on the third attempt the venerable ananda asks the buddha most venerable sir the most supreme buddha why is it that you reject this offer you know this is your stepmother she wishes to make this offering to you do you not remember how much of a mother figure she was in your life when your mother when your own mother passed away she doted on you she looked after you she cared for you she fed you and brought you up to be who you are today do you do you, have you forgotten that sir to which the buddha's reply was ananda there is no one who understands the value and the qualities of a mother as i do not me the buddha and and it is that, and that is the reason i have rejected this personal offering and instead i insist that she makes it to the mahasangha because the mahasangha includes the buddha so therefore you get two in one so the inf- the virtues of the mahasangha are infinite because it also includes the buddha but of course the virtues of the mahasangha are also infinite on their own accord but remember this is a very important lesson to understand because as the you know we listened to a story from last week remember how you know what some people see on television and you know things going on out there it's very easy to get into a wrong impression that the actions 
or inactions of one person is representative of the entire community. Now this is, this is, this is not right. But unfortunately, when people don't take the, won't make an effort to, to you know, investigate and further question their understanding and belief, they fall into this trap. Think about it. I mean, you know, let's forget the Mahasangha for a second. What about teachers? Are they good people or bad people? You know, can you, can you assess, can you make a sweeping judgment on teachers by the actions of one person? Aren't there people who call themselves teachers who do the most atrocious of things to their students, to other colleagues, and completely you know, destroy the reputation of all teachers? Aren't there people who do that? So is it fair for us to think that all teachers are like that? No. So, you know, if you have someone, if you know someone who feels that way about the Swami Nuhansas, one thing I can suggest to you, because I was thinking about the good lady and how I can help to address that particular situation. All last week I was thinking about that. And, you know, one way you could do this is you could speak to the person, whoever who has that issue, and ask, you know, what is your profession? You know, normally people will either be in one or will have been in one, right? So either they'll be a teacher, maybe an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor, right? Whoever, fisherman, whatever, right? Whatever trade they're in, whatever profession they're in, ask them, I saw one day a, one, someone who's doing your profession do these bad things. So is it fair for me to say that all people are like that? Are you like that? To which, of course, we know the answer. No. Just because someone did it doesn't mean we are all like that. Look at me. I'm a good person. Ah, I dropped my case. <laughs> yeah? Just because one person does it doesn't mean you can you know, paint everyone with the same brush. That's stereotyping. So that's one way you can help people figure that, you know, to, to come out of that wrong idea that one is all. So that's why whenever you make an offering, not, don't make it to that particular Swami Nasa, so you don't need to know whether he's a, he practices the path, you know, is he virtuous, does he observe his precepts, right? It's, it's irrelevant. What we do is we make offerings to the Mahasangha. And Mahasangha is not a person. It's also really not a community. What it, it's not something you can pinpoint with your finger. Say, you know, because a community you can point, right? So those people. You can't say those people are the Mahasangha. Yeah, when we recite the, the Gata, Supatipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. Right? See, with each of those utterances, you utter a virtue, don't you? Supatipanno. Is a, is a virtue. Ujupatipanno. Nayapatipanno. These are virtues. And it is those virtues that we pay homage to. Not a person. So anyone who does not have those qualities, who do not possess those virtues, are not qualified to be called the Mahasangha. But that is not something that you can tell just by looking at them. So therefore it's best for us to not pass any judgment. But as someone who represents the Mahasangha, it becomes my duty to ask myself and look at my own, check my own conduct and ask myself, am I keeping in line with the virtues to which you have made this offering? So, you know, say, for example, you make an Atapirikar offering, right? 
I want you to make that make that offering to the virtues of the Mahasangha. Let me put it this way. It's not that the Mahasangha adhere to those virtues or instill in the, instill those virtues. It's the other way around. If you possess those virtues, that qualifies you to be named or that qualifies you to be considered Mahasangha. That's the way it works, not the other way around. So a Buddha became a Buddha not after becoming a Buddha. Does that make sense? He instilled within himself, in himself the infinite virtues that we try and uh, encapsulate within the Itipi So Bhagava, that, that Gata. Yeah, there's only nine of them there, but you, know, you can't say it's only those nine qualities that a Buddha possesses because they are infinite. But we try and encapsulate them in, in, in that Gata. And a Buddha becomes a Buddha by instilling those values and virtues within his mind. So it's a journey that makes him a Buddha. It's not that he becomes a Buddha and then you know, he goes on to observe those virtues. That's not the way it works. So it's like you know, when you get a job, first you have to show your qualifications, right? If you've got the qualifications, you get the job. Not you get the job and then work on your qualifications. It doesn't work like that, right? It's the same concept applies here. So those qualifications, those virtues, this is what we venerate, this is what we worship, this is what we pay homage to, and that's what you always need to have in mind when you either you know, make your offering, be that a worship or any other material offering of the four requisites. Now, why did we talk about that? What were we talking about? Parents. How did we get here? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Okay. So... To help parents understand, parents and anyone else to understand, if, you know, in case their, their, their opinion has been tarnished by something they have seen, you know, one technique you could try with them is ask them, what do you do for a living? And are all people, I've seen people, or I know people who misappropriate their responsibilities and their, 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 their trust that is placed and bestowed upon them. And are you okay for me to think that they're all like that? To which, of course, their answer is going to be, no. They're not all like that. Look at me. I'm a good person. Uh, in the same way, right? In the same way, not all Swami answers are like that. Just because you see someone doing something that is not right, doesn't mean they all are like that. So that's just an answer to uh, one of the questions we got last week. But if the problem continues, then I have asked... Uh, for an appointment for you to be booked so we can discuss in more detail and work out a plan to help your mother. I don't know if you got the message, but I sent a message. I, I promised you, if you come and ask me Dhamma questions, I might tell you next time, next time, please, later. <laughs> but if you come and ask me, I want to help my mother, I want to help my father, so I mean, say, I'm really struggling to help them to understand the Dhamma. They're just not up to it. Right? I will make sure to give you some time to help you with that challenge. Because I know two things. One, it is your duty and your responsibility to do that. And two, whether they make use of your help or not, you earn an enormous amount of merits just by making an attempt, an effort to help them out. 
So everyone wins. Okay, so if you need that help, then please speak to our team and organize some time. I'm not saying it'll necessarily be myself, but one of our Swami Nazis will be more than happy to help you overcome that particular challenge. Right, moving on. I promised to show you a video, didn't I? Yes, and I almost forgot, thanks to Dasahamdru, I didn't. So he reminded me last night, you promised to show a video on two weeks in a row, right? People are going to think that you are a liar. Right? We, are, we are trying to, uh, you know, do some, do build a reputation here, right? right? Please, right? You need to <laughs> keep a respect of the Swami Nuhanses, right? Come on, what are you up, what are you doing? Right? So he set me right. And uh, so we got the video for you. Now, this is not just a, a video to entertain you, right? So I need, I need to explain to you why I'm showing this to you. Because now you may not forget the context in which I, I promised to show you this video. Otherwise, if I just show it to you now, you'll just have a laugh and say, ah, nice, that's very nice. So I mean, I said, What's next? <laughs> right? So it is not one of those things. There's a, there's a lesson to be learned with this. Do you remember we talked about belonging? Right? That's what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, right? And this sense of belonging, as I hope you are now beginning to understand, only, is only a source of fear and grief. It does not bring you any, anything else. It does not bring you any, anything positive. You become a protector of it, you become the security guard, you become the guardian of it from the moment you become its protector or from the moment you, you feel that sense of belonging and that sense of belonging doesn't add any value to that object. It doesn't work faster, it doesn't become more efficient, it doesn't you know, move faster, it doesn't write better, right? it doesn't increase in, in value, it doesn't, I mean, I, what I mean by is intrinsic value, right? it doesn't become more of it just because you feel it belongs to you and Sometimes your sense of belonging can give you a false sense of safety as well. This is why um, I explained to you the other day, you know, with advances in technology, is where this conversation came up, right? Advances in technology has given you, people believe that it's given them freedom, but actually what has happened is it has taken away your freedom. How so? Now you've got everything automated, and pre before you could just go to sleep and, you know, Nothing, nothing would keep you up at night, but now when you have your CCTV cameras plugged in and your monitor right beside your bedside, right, every few minutes you have to wake up and check your cameras to see everything is okay. And the tick tick goes off on your mobile phone, you know, alerts, security alerts, alarm alerts, and you know, these things have just become other distractions and disturbances in your life. It's taken away your peace. But I'm not, I'm not someone who's against technology per se. What I'm against is this sense of belonging. Because this sense of belonging has become your, it's a curse, although it feels like a blessing. That's the thing. People like the sense of belonging. And they like to have more things belong to them. That's why we work so hard. We strive to have more things belong to us. I mean, countries go to war, don't they? Because they want more land. 
They want other parts of other countries to belong to them. They're prepared to kill, murder, innocent lives. So this sense of belonging is a destructive force. It is not a constructive force. The video I want to show you, I'm, I want to show this to you because I want you to take a lesson from it. Particularly this one. There are, there's probably quite a few you can take from it, but particularly I want, I'm focusing on this. That is, your sense of belonging, your sense of belonging, not your belonging, your sense of belonging, so it's a sense that you have, brings nothing of value to that particular item or that product. Particularly, it works for anybody. So this clock, I can convince myself that it belongs to me, but it will tick and it will talk until the battery lasts in any of your hands. It's not just something that's going to work while I'm using it. Therefore, I can say all night long that this belongs to me, but that me saying that something belongs to me doesn't make this any better a clock. This doesn't make this mic any better a mic. A car, a washing machine, or anything. This chair doesn't hold your weight better because you believe it's yours. Right? See if you can grasp that lesson from the video you're just about to watch. What did you see happen? Ah, uh, and what happened? You saw a gate, right? What happened? The gate? Gate opened, right? So, to put it very simply, the gate opened. Why did the gate open? That's what gates do. Right? That's what? That's what gates do. They open and they, they close. Okay, carry on. should be here. What is he talking about? Yeah. He's talking about a sense of belonging, right? 
He says, my gates, now this is what he would have said, which is not in the video. He said, see, I can open my gates. I can open, what gates? My gates. Because they're mine, who can open them? I can open them. Only letting me get in, right? Yeah. Then the robbers went up to the door. Now they're trying, they've got a lockpick, they're trying to open the door. But you didn't, they didn't worry with that. What happened? The door opened. Why, why did the door open? Because that's what doors do. They open. For whom? No, they open for anyone. Because that's what doors do. Then the guy walked in, and there was a, what we can assume is a valuable painting, and he took it and packed it in his bag. Because that's an object that can be taken here and there. Right? Because that's what objects do. They make themselves available to be taken here and there. By whom? The owner? No. Do you need a sense of belonging to be able to do that? No. Then he went on and went to the, the guys went into the house. And then there was a, an automatic vacuum cleaner. Right? An iRobot or whatever you call it this is. And what happened? So he took it. Put it in his bag. Because again, it's an object. And an object can be taken by... Who? The owner, right? No, it can be taken by anyone. Why are they stealing it? Because once they take it, they can still control it. Because if you couldn't use it, they wouldn't take it. Then he unplugged the speakers. Did you see that? So that long thing was a speaker. He unplugged it, again packed it in his bag, and took it with him. Why? Because he can use it. Why? To listen to music, to sounds. Why? Because that's what speakers do. They emit sound. For whom? That's a wrong question, isn't it? And in the end, you saw the guy open his car. And said, see, this is my car. It even opens my car, he says, right? And then, so what are the guys, the robbers thinking now? They're having a field trip. Now all the, because the next, you know what the next thing the guy's going to say. I can even turn on the ignition on my car. <laughs> and the only one that can do that is me. His sense of belonging is going to make him lose everything. That word everything has more meanings than one for you. His sense of belonging is going to make him lose everything. He's going to come home in a bit. Is he, is, isn't he? And then he's going to go insane. All because of that sense of belonging. Now what I'm trying to show here is that, you know, look at what technology has done. That's not what I'm trying to show you here. I want you to focus on this sense of belonging and how much of a lie it is. How meaningless it is. That sense of belonging didn't stop other people from coming and taking things that thought that you thought belonged to you. Because they'll still work in someone else's hands. I promise you that speaker, when the guy goes and plugs it into his home, he's going to get the surround sound just the way as the person who now believes he's the owner does. So that sense of belonging amounts to nothing.
But that sense of belonging will teach him a good lesson. One that he won't learn though. He'll try to teach him, but he won't learn it. That lesson is fear and grief. Think about it. Why have they built that app? Fear. Because, you know, he's the only one with control and access is me. So he has fear. He's, he's in fear that someone else might come and take his property. That's why he's got the app. That's why he's built this sophisticated system so that no one else can get in, or so he thinks. So that's fear. You're either in fear or grief. You're always in either fear or grief. There's not a moment when you're not in either one of them. When you have something you want, you're in fear. When you don't have something you want, you're in grief. So this guy's going to come home and he's going to switch from fear to grief. That phone he has in his hand, you know, that mobile app, that sophisticated technology, has it alleviated his suffering? No. It hasn't taken away his fear. He's trying to address fear, not by eradicating it, by trying to plaster over it. So it's given him a false sense of security, a false sense of, I can be fearless now, nothing's going to happen. But it's not true. See what belonging has done to that person. This sense of belonging. And I emphasize the fact that this is a sense of belonging. It's a feeling of belonging because that belonging didn't stop the other people from taking it. And they can use it just the same. It might even be that the owner hasn't even identified all the features and functionality of, of some of those equipment. Perhaps the guy who takes it is going to spend more time with it and is going to learn a new thing or two that the owner previously even didn't know about it. So last week or you know, the week before we talked about passwords. Does that make something yours? No, but it gives you that false feeling that it's yours, right? See, now he's got a password. He probably has a fingerprint scanner on his mobile app through which only he can log into the app. But the moment he's logged in, he's giving this demo and his home is being looted. Now ask yourselves, does this not happen in your life? No, Swaminas, I don't have a home like that. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Don't miss the point. Does this not happen in your lives? You walk around with a sense of belonging without you even knowing property and therefore your happiness is being looted day and night long. Tell them I'll bring back later. Think about it. Think about the things that you have the sense of belonging for. You know, that's why I said, you know, go home, you know, think about what you have at home, your furniture, your, your valuables, whatever you, you may have, collectibles, things that are of sentimental value. Perhaps that piece of art, you know, maybe it's worth millions. And looking at his, you know, home, it's probably worth quite a bit, right? In the story, at least, I mean, right? So, but... You know, in a fraction of a second, it's, it's gone. Is your sense of belonging really eating away into your happiness? I want you to start thinking. Here you saw a home. 
right? This is his property. Think about your property. Not that property, not the brick and mortar property. I'm talking about this, whatever you feel belongs to you, your happiness I'm talking about. Isn't your sense of belonging corroding your happiness? Isn't your sense of belonging eroding your happiness? You could all be a million times happier than you are right now if you could simply let go of that sense of belonging. Something that truly doesn't even exist. That say that you have on something doesn't really exist. It's just an idea that you have. It's a fabrication of your own mind. That's why you have to go around proving to people, no, this belongs to me, that belongs to me. You can't even walk up to your bank account and get your money out before, unless you prove that you are the bank account holder, right? So is it your money? You need a paper trail to prove that. Sense of belonging. Let me show you another video. Again, what is the lesson you want to take? I want you to take from this. Sense of belonging adds zero value. It's a zero value add. Those of you in business will understand. You know, in business, what we try and do is we add value to things, you know, to a product or a service before we sell it off to somebody else. Right? It's that value add which becomes your, you know, your unique selling point. Okay? So my question to you is, we should only do things if they actually bring us some value. You cook because you can eat it. Hmm? You breathe because it allows you to stay alive. See? You don't do anything that you know will only bring you grief and fear, suffering. But don't you? You do, right? All right, let's watch this. So what's he on? Slow down. Slowing down. He's on his yacht, yeah, boat, yacht. He's on his yacht. And uh, it's his, isn't it? How do you know it's his? Yeah, you know, he, 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 he can voice command. You know, he says, hey, boat. Yes, sir. Slow down. Yes, sir. This boat is subservient to him. So he considers himself the master of the boat. So this is my boat and I am the master, like my car, my petrol. So this is his, his boat, right? Let's see how his boat is going to serve him. Stop. So he's enjoying himself, isn't he? So when he says fan, the fans come on. When he says anchor down, the boat anchors down. When the boat, he says stop, the boat stops. Why? Because it's, it listens to his commands. Because it's his boat, right? So it should only listen to him, right? Yeah? It should only listen to him because it's his boat. I mean, that, isn't that the feeling that he has? My boat, therefore, my rules. It should only listen to me. Well, let's see. 
Anchor down. Anchor down. And stop. And fan. Peel shrimps. Peeling shrimps. Hmm. Rotating for maximum sun. What do you learn from that? Yeah, that's a very simple lesson at the end. Keep keep things simple. Right? Keep things simple. But we can't. Because we need we attach this sense of belonging. Therefore, things are never simple. You can't enjoy the beauty of this world. Do you know that? Because there are some things you find beautiful. And there are others you don't. You can't enjoy wealth because part of the wealth that, this, that is available in this world you believe is yours. The other part is not yours. So you can't enjoy wealth. Do you understand me? You can't enjoy wealth. You can't enjoy success. Because only some of this success in this world is mine. The other is somebody else's. So I can't enjoy that. When two teams play and you believe that one team is your team, you can't enjoy victory. Because only some of those victories are mine. Others are not mine. This world is entirely enjoyable. I'm talking about in a very completely different sense to Anichadukkanata, right? So this is a different paradigm. But you can't enjoy that. You can't enjoy all the cars in this world because only one of it is mine. The others are not mine. So if they look nice, if they drive nicely, yeah, it's all right. It's not my car though. You see how you have made things complicated and not kept it simple? If you had kept things simple, you could have enjoyed all of it. Today you can't look at wealth and go, wow, how great. A wealthy man. Because the moment you think wealth, you, you, you are reminded that either you have some or you don't have enough. Because immediately that sense of belonging kicks in without you being able to stop yourself. That's why this morning we talked about that feeling, that sense, and you can't pull the handbrakes on it. There's a process that brings that alive. Unless you identify that process and pull the plug, your wanting to stop it is not going to stop it. The firmest determination to stop it ain't going to do anything to it. Your wish and your prayer is not going to do anything about it. 
because this world is not based on prayers. It doesn't operate in answer to prayers. It works on the principle of cause and effect. For as long as there are causes, the effects will manifest themselves, whether you pray or not. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Ye dhamma hetu pabhava, te hetu tathagato aha. This world is based on cause and effect. Before we tackle this sense of belonging by investigating the causes and trying to work at them, first I want to convince you that this sense of belonging is only a curse to you and take out any, even a, the tiniest fraction if you have a belief that, mm, but Swami Nansa, you know, still it does do me something. I, I, want to, I want to remove all of that first and make you fall out of love as we once did with pleasure, make you fall out of love with this sense of belonging. To show you, to convince you that this sense of belonging is not something that's going to give you anything but only take everything you have, like the man we saw in the first video. He's going to lose everything. This sense of belonging. You can't keep things simple. Do you really think you live a simple life? Think about it. Now you have something to compare yourself, your life with, don't you? Look in front of you. Fewer things that belong. That is the only difference. A lesser sense of belonging. I'm not going to say absolutely none. I'm still working at that. But a hugely diminished sense of belonging. The less we feel that something belongs to us, the more we can really enjoy it. You can't stop fear and grief kicking in. So how can you enjoy it? Answer this question. You see a girl. You have a crush on her. You get into a relationship. Now you have someone, right? Who do you call her? My girlfriend, right? You want her to be your girlfriend so you can enjoy that relationship, yeah? But can you though? You've got yourself a relationship, but you've also got fear. Fear for as long as she's with you and grieve the moment she leaves you. So how can you enjoy her companion? How can you enjoy her companionship? But let's say you wanted her to be yours because you thought she was good. She was good looking. Maybe she had good manners. Right? You can still enjoy that. She's still good looking. Didn't make a difference. She's still got good manners. You didn't have to make her yours to enjoy that. You know, the sight is still the same sight. That hasn't changed. But the moment you did that, you went in looking for something positive. You walked out having lost everything positive and only something negative. Again and again, I'm trying to help you understand, folks, this sense of belonging is only a killer. It's a, it seems like a blessing, but it's a, but it's a curse in disguise. It comes wrapped as a blessing. 
you know, with nice wrapping paper, right? Stars and stickers and everything. But once you unwrap it, it's just a load of toss. Think about it. Wherever you have made life complicated, it's because of this sense of belonging. You can't sleep easy. You can't wake up in the morning and expect a carefree day because your day will not be carefree. You know that. You can wish for it, but you're not going to get that. Things may all go to plan, but that doesn't mean you are not in fear because you are always in fear that things may not go to plan because that plan was your plan. Again, a sense of belonging. So we've now discussed quite a bit about external objects, right? Now I want to bring it a bit closer to yourselves. You were there this morning, right? And we got those little toys, toy figures. And towards the end, I, what did I do? I broke a leg, didn't I? Yes. Now, I want you to start thinking about your bodies. <clears throat> Think about who you are. Who are you really? Two things comprise you. The body and the mind. It's a fleeting mind though. You know this because what you thought a moment ago is not what you're thinking right now. So whatever thought arose in the moment prior to this has now passed away and now this is a separate thought. So this concept of arising and passing away is, I think, pretty apparent to you all. What we know then that this mind is not a fixed thing but rather it arises and passes away. That's why your opinions change. That's why the way you feel about things change. That's why your likes and dislikes change. So you are these two things. The composition of these two things. The body and mind. First I want to help you unbuckle this connection that you have with this body. So I'm not... So we can have an out-of-body experience. Are you ready for that? No, no, you're not. You can, you can undo your seatbelts. You know, we are not going to have an out-of-body experience. This is wholly something you need to understand. No experience I'm going to give you. Okay? So this is not a 5D cinema. Both. You're going to get an, <laughs> a special kind of experience. I want you to begin to see the body as it is. Let's start from the top. You have a head. Hopefully. Right? Eyes, nose, mouth, tongue, teeth, hmm? a throat, head, skull, brain, hopefully. Right? Then all the things that are on the inside, right? the blood vessels and all the other nice parts that you have inside your head, right? These things, they serve a function. 
They serve a function. What are they there for? To serve, to serve a function. They're not there to belong to you. They're there to serve a function. Let's start to understand the part, our bodies in that way to begin with. I'm taking this slow, folks, because you know we've never looked at it in this way throughout our time in Sansara. Therefore, I don't want to rush through this. You might think, you know, so I'm not, yes, that's obvious, let's move on to the next one. No, what I want to do is to make sure that this really sinks and I want to take your time with this. I, you know, my teacher took my time with it and his time with it, so you know, I think it's only reasonable that we take our time and go one step at a time. Start thinking about, you know, one part of your body, right? Let's all think about, say, our hand. You know, hand with the five fingers. This hand is here to serve a function. I can grasp things with it. I can pinch, right? I can hold things with it. These are things I can do with this. This hand is here to serve a function. For whom? It's here to serve a function. It does not obey your every command. Agreed or not? Therefore, you can't claim to be its master. Try and bend your hand backwards. All the way back. Until your middle finger touches your uh, forearm. Can you? No. Perhaps there are some among you who are especially talented. Right? But I'm saying bend your arm, your hand backwards so that it can touch your, for, your forearm. No, it's not possible because it's not, not meant to serve that function. That's why it can't do it. Not, be the, not because you want it or not because you don't want it. It's not designed to serve that function. So then, what does this hand do? Do the things that you want it to do, or does it serve functions? It serves functions. You can choose to make use of those functions. Yeah? You can all choose to make use of those functions. Some might choose to do this, clench your fist. Some might choose to extend your fist. Some might choose to pinch, grasp, rub. These are, these are functions that can be served. You can choose whichever function you want, but you can't get it to do something it was not designed to do, meaning you are not its master. Can we all agree on that? And it is not your slave. Because a slave does without question. That is by definition a slave. A slave will do without question whatever it's his master asks him to do. Your hand is not your slave and therefore you are not its master. It simply serves functions. It serves a multiple multitude of functions. You can pick and choose whichever functions you want to make use of. There will be times when certain functions cannot be served. For example, if you break your wrist, maybe have a fracture, maybe your, 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 your fingers are swollen, 
right? Maybe when it's frozen, or maybe you've got some kind of um, muscle spasm. Maybe your maybe there's a, a a neural problem, and the neurons are not working. There's a nervous some some nervous issue, and it's not working properly. The muscles are not contracting. Now the arm is the, your hand is not going to do what you want you want it to do. Some of its functions have been impaired. Therefore, you can no longer make use of the hand to serve such functions. Do you see that this is simply a tool that's available to be used? Why do you call it your hand then? Why do you say that this is my hand and mine alone? Don't touch it. Would it not be better to say, don't touch the hand? You know, like people say, talk to the hand. <laughs> Can you please hold the hand? Would, it not, would that not be better to say than to say, hold my hand? Because what is the my adding to it? What does it add? Nothing. Does it allow to do something else? Something that it wasn't able to do? Before you started to call it mine? You know, eventually I'll explain to you folks, if you hang in there long enough, that even this thought of, you know, which function am I going to use is also not yours. They're also based in cause and effect. That's when you, you feel like you've been just been hit with a hammer behind your head. We're, we're getting there. Because right now I'm telling you, okay, okay, the, the hand is a tool. You can pick and choose which functions you want. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> I feel relieved. Because at least I'm picking and choosing, right? At least I'm picking and choosing which functions I know. So, so therefore, I'm using the hand, okay, the hand, but my choices. Ah, okay, okay. Let's keep going, keep going. Hmm? And we'll see, we'll see how they became your choices. Hmm? Teaser. Okay, I'll give you a teaser. Choose not to listen to my voice. Choose not to understand what I'm saying. Go. Don't understand what I'm saying. Don't understand what I'm saying. Do you understand? <laughs> Do you understand what I've just said? Huh? Do you? Then don't understand what I'm saying. Do you understand? <laughs> but you think you make your own choices. Have you chosen to understand? Okay, then choose not to understand. Oh, okay. So you choose when you want to choose. Huh? Is that so then? So I mean, I choose when I want to choose and I choose when I don't want to choose. Is that what you're saying? Okay, then choose not to choose. That's just silly, right? You know, this is, you know, this, this belief that you had about all the things that were going on inside of this, you know, to your command, to your, you know, you surrender to your every wish, whim and fancy. You're beginning to understand, uh, wow, no, something's wrong. This is not what I thought it was. I didn't sign up for this. This is not the package that I bought. You should have read the T's and C's, the small print. Never did it say, we're going to give you your body. You are going to get a body. This is what you've got. That's why your hand does not do everything you want it to do. See, in a few years' time, if it will even do the things that it does right now, 
Today you do this. In a few years you will do this. Yes or no? Then I'll stop dancing. Say, I'm trying, so I'm in no answer. Will you or won't you? You will? So if it's your hand, stop doing it then. So is it your choice to do that? So then does your choice matter? Can you hear me at the back? Can you hear me at the back? Put your hand up if you cannot hear me. Put your hand up if you can hear me at the back back row. Okay. All right, take another part of your body. Your eyes. Hmm? Your eyes. Keep them open. Keep them open. And stop seeing me. I know what you're thinking. No, Swami. That's not how it works. If I don't want to see you, I close my eyes. That's how I don't see you. What are you going on about? Keep your, my eyes open and don't see you. you nuts. That's not how it works. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if they are your eyes and they surrender to your every command, keep them open, I dare you, and not see me. Why should you have to shut them to not see me? Think about it. Why should you have to shut them, shut your eyelids to not see me? Because... Seeing is not something that you can choose or choose not to do. Seeing is the outcome of a process. There are causes which lead to that effect, the effect of seeing. That is why you have to keep these eyelids open to see. And that is why if you choose not to see, you have to close the eyelids to stop light from entering your eyes. If light enters your eyes, folks, there's no way you can stop yourself from seeing, assuming the rest of it is operation. So is this what I want and what I don't want, or is it a case of cause and effect? Cause and effect. So what function does the eye serve? Not capital I, this side. Seeing. For whom? For whom? That question means nothing. It is not for someone to see. It is to see. Just like when you went home and you looked at what you had at home, right? Your utensils, your furniture, your whatever home equipment you have. And like we saw in the video, those things serve a function. A gate does what? Opens. And it closes. For whom? No, a gate opens. And a gate closes. And I cease. For whom? Oh, 
That makes no sense. Take another part of the body, particularly something you can do a transplant with. Now things will really start to make a little bit more sense. What can you transplant these days? Anything new? Hmm? Lungs? Can you transplant lungs? Lung transplant? Hmm? Lungs? Yeah, lungs. Okay, lungs. What do lungs do? Hmm? They respirate. Respirate for whom? What do your lungs do with them? They respirate for you, right? Sir, what do your lungs do? They respirate for you, right? Huh? We take your lungs and we transplant it to somebody else. What are the lungs going to say? No. Put me back where I belong and I will respirate. Do the lungs say that? No. Don't they work just fine? They do. Why? Because a lung didn't come into this world to serve as a slave for a master. It came into this world, it somehow, right? A pair of lungs came into this world to respirate. That is its function. You can choose to either use it for that or not. You can hold your breath. Now it's not going to respirate. For now you think you're doing it. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Right? We'll come to that point. What about CPR? You know CPR? When you do CPR on a patient, you compress their lungs, right? And what does that do? That kicks off the circulation in the body, right? Air gets pumped out and fresh air is pulled in to the lungs, right? And then the oxygenation of blood happens. Who's doing it? The person who thinks he, he needs, it's his lungs, you know, they don't even know what's going on. Perhaps they're in a coma. They've lost their consciousness. So you see, lungs respirate, not for someone. They just respirate. Heart. We've been doing heart transplants for donkeys years now. A heart helps circulate. For whom? So why do you say, my heart, and don't break it, please? Why do you say it's my heart? What is that my adding to it? The only, only one thing. You know, don't break my heart. What is that? Is it not fear? That's fear. Please don't break my heart. Isn't that fear? It's one of the things that lovers tell each other. Please never Break my heart. I mean, that's how much they trust the other person. <laughs> you, right at the start of the relationship, let's, get, let's come to some agreements. <laughs> I trust you so much, but please don't break my heart. <laughs> so what is the heart? What is the heart's function? Circulate. 
to pump blood. Whose blood? What kind of blood? A positive or B positive? Which blood? Whose blood? Huh? No, it matters not. A heart is a heart is a heart. It will always pump and it will pump and it will pump. Until the pumping can be done, it will pump. One day it's not going to be able to pump. And then it matters not whether that heart was belonged to a king or an emperor, right? Or a rich man or a poor man. It will stop. Why? Because that is what a heart does. Now I'm giving you a few examples. Now I want you to take a moment and think from head to toe. Find me one thing that is part of your body that you can truly say is yours and it surrenders to every command that you give it. It will only do when you want it to do. And it will only do it for you and nobody else. See if you can think of one thing like that. Madam? It is a process, yeah. That is why doctors study that process. I mean, to, you know, truth be told, if, if the heart was yours, then there would be no point in having doctors to try and fix it. Yes or no? Like, you know, one of the things they do when they do open surgery is first put the patient into a state of unconsciousness, like, to um, anesthesia, right? That's the worst thing to do, don't you think so? Because if the heart is the person's and it only answers to their commands, <laughs> the last thing you need to be doing is to put them under. <laughs> but, you know, because they should be conscious, shouldn't they? If these things are the, they, if these, these parts of the body belong to the patient and they'll only work when the patient decides, when the, when the, when the owner decides, then the last thing you need to do, you should be doing, is putting them under. But no, that's the first thing they do. Why? Because you don't need a person, you don't need someone who has a sense of belonging about their parts for it to work. Because, as the lady said, it's a process. It's simply cause and effect in action. And they're here to serve a function. They will serve their function for as long as they can do. And when it can't do, it'll stop serving that function. Once it stops serving its function, there is nothing you can do to make it serve its function again unless you go back and find out why it stopped serving that function and then try and rejig it or maybe fix it. That's why you go to the doctor. You know, if these things belong to you folks, why would you need a doctor? Don't you think so? Yeah, arm doesn't work. Arm, work. You know, like the guy was saying, the boat. Boat, anchor down. Arm, work. <laughs> you know, like when sometimes you sleep on, on, your, on your arm, and when you wake up, your arm's gone numb, and it, you, know, you, you feel like it doesn't belong to you. Have you you've all experienced that, right? Your arm's gone numb. Do you, have you, remember the first time that happened? I, oh, I remember it. How did you feel? Yes. Were you not scared when that first happened? That, my God, my arm, it's not working. What's happened to my arm? That is what that sense of belonging did. Because you thought to yourself, it's my arm 
so it should answer to my every call. If you went into the hospital and someone's there in bed because their arm doesn't work, you won't feel the same way about that arm as you did when your arm went numb. Because that arm you don't think is your arm. You see, they are both arms. Hmm? They are both arms. But about one, when it doesn't work, you feel differently to the other. Because for one, you have a sense of belonging. To the other, that's not mine, it's just an arm. Or his arm. Because it's his arm, it should answer to his commands, not my commands. See how far you take this. And you go to you go all the way and say, you know, now you are mine and you have to answer to my commands. We end up even saying that to other people. Because we are never satisfied, we're not never content. This this sense of belonging, folks, is you know, it's like a, it's like a cancer, yes. Once it starts, it just keeps on spreading until it destroys everything it touches. Your sense of belonging will consume you. All of you. Not all of you, all of you. Meaning it will consume you entirely. All you are, we, at one point you will feel that all I am is what belongs to me. Oh, I'm not going to comment on that, madam. <laughs> Don't get me into hot water. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Right? When people want a good look, good look? When people want to look good. <laughs> when people want to look good, there will be things that they do because you know, things they've learned, they've heard, right? things that their parents, um, sorry, sometimes parents, sometimes friends do. Right? The thing is this. What is it that wanted to look good? The mind, right? Remember, we talked, there are two things here, the body and the mind. The mind wanted to look good, but what do you decorate? The body. So that's like, I want to go to a party, looking smart. I come out to your house, sir, and I dress you up in a suit, right? Polished shoes, right? Nice uh, tie and jacket and everything. And say, right, you're now looking dapper, Looking very nice. Bye, I'm going to the party. <laughs> yes, so no? Yeah. I wanted to good look. Keep on saying good look. I wanted to look good, but I'm decorating, I'm primping up someone else. The same thing happens with the mind. The mind wants to look good, but it starts decorating the body. Why? Because it thinks. That this is all me. This is all me. This is my body. This, you know, the, the very special thing about this body is that you need at least some understanding of at least basic science, at least basic science, okay? If not Buddhism, at least basic science to begin to at least think that this is not me, but my body. Without that, you'll think that this is also me. Thinking that this is my body is at least one step better than thinking that this is me. 
at the most primitive level of one's understanding of the truth, the body itself becomes me. This is me. Look at me. So full of themselves. That's why we talked about the other day, you know, if someone calls you fat, hey, fat so. Doesn't that offend people? Shorty. Doesn't that offend people? Why? Think about it. Why are there words which are racially offensive? You know, there are racially offensive words, right? If you use those words, you could get locked up or beaten down. Because the color of the skin, this is my skin, this is my body, this is me. So when you use that word, you're offending me. The truth is, you can't offend someone without their permission. You understand that? You can't offend or insult someone without their permission. Because it is not those words that offend. You yourselves offend yourselves. You can say all sorts of things about the appearance of my body or this body. This body. You can say all sorts of things about this body. I can choose, I can choose, I repeat, I can choose to believe that what you have said, you have said about me. <laughs> Just like I can choose not to believe that once I have an understanding of the Dhamma. Really, once you understand the Dhamma, it is again not a choice. That is the only way that you can see it. So you don't choose to become an Arahant and be an Arahant. Because then you can be an Arahant one time and you go back to become an Anagami another time. Right? I'd like to spend some time as a Prutakjana for a little while. <laughs> That's not a choice. You know, eventually, folks, I want to get you there to get this idea out of your head that choice is such an important thing. It is a very two-dimensional uh, topic, this, this choice. When you, when you step that mark, when you go into the third dimension, there is no such thing as a choice. You are what you think. And again, you don't choose to think. These are thoughts that are produced because there are causes which give rise to that. You are entirely a product of cause and effect. Entirely, absolutely and comprehensively. But you have a sense of self. You feel that you are very different to the person sat next to you, don't you? You feel a sense of identity. I am me and this is that guy, this is that guy. Can you ever think, at least you know, for a second, that you and the person next to you are no different? We'll say things like that, you know, we are all the same, we are all human beings, you know, it's the same blood. No, blood is red wherever it is, right? You know, why, why do we make these differences among ourselves? You know, race and color and creed and, yeah, you know, we are all the same. You'll say that, but you can't stop that feeling of I am myself. You can't stop it. Because it's not something you can choose to stop. Because you don't choose to start it. Or you don't choose to feel that way. It's not choice here. It's simply cause and effect. If it were choice, let's all agree and stop it now. Then you won't have to come back here again. I won't have to come here again. You know, jobs are good. We are done. But it's not choice. 
I've showed you enough already how this sense of belonging only brings you suffering, right? I've showed you several times over and over again. Right, so at least now can we stop feeling this way? Go on then. Can I whack you? Can I swear at you and ask you to stop it? Can I beat you up and say stop it? Can I lock you down and get you to stop it? No. Why? Because there's a process that's running which you may still be ignorant to. There's a process that's running which brings you this feeling of self. Until you identify that process and the causes for it, you can't stop it. That is one of the most important lessons I want to take. I want you to take from this, from today's talk. What, man? Yes, it is. It is. It is our thoughts. That's why I said you are you. You are what you think. You are what you think. What I'm saying is, if you go a step further. Your thoughts are also product, a product of cause and effect. Ten years ago, you never thought of coming to this monastery, but here you are today. If you work your way back down memory lane, you will see all the causes that led you to being here today. Yes or no? Yeah. It was not magic, was it, that you're here today? You can tell every story going back to when I first got to listen to the Dhamma. I had met a friend one day. Uh, then he said, there's a, you know, a good-looking Swami Nuhanse. <laughs> huh? You should go and listen to it. And then you came and then he was not available so I had to come and fill in. <laughs> yeah? So you know, if you think back, you'll see all the causes that led you here. I want you to start understanding yourselves in that way. Let's start to do that. Try, start to see yourself as a series of cause and effect. Processes. Everything. From head to toe, to every thought. This is a series of cause and effect. There is one process for which I have not explained the cause and effect yet, which I will get to. But first, I want you to understand that everything you feel, everything you experience, all thoughts you have, all emotions you have, every response you take, is all down to cause and effect. You are a bundle of cause and effect. You are in totality a manifestation of cause and effect. So if you are a cause and effect manifestation, and the person sat next to you is also of course, an effect manifestation, and the person sat next to, and the person behind, and the person in front. What's different about you? Why do you feel you are so different to the other person? That is also because there's another process which is also driven by cause and effect that makes you feel that you are a unique individual, that you have this identity. Which, make, which sets you apart from everybody else. That is what makes you, you. No one talks about this because they celebrate that outside of these four walls. Celebrate who you are. Get to know yourself. Hmm? Yeah? Get to know yourself. Celebrate who you are. Understand yourself. 
identify with yourself. Realize that you are a unique individual with unique wants and needs. <laughs> and independent. Hmm? See? This is how we were taught to think. Why? Because all those syllabi, all those teaching methods were not based in cause and effect. Maybe to some extent. I mean, you know, science is also based in cause and effect. But the thing is this. As I was staying, discussing with Guru Hamdru the other day, I said, Guru Hamdru, you know, I learned human biology in, during my college years and because I was fascinated by how the body works. And even back then I realized that, you know, this is all, these are processes that make this whole body work the way it does. And it's that process and the logic behind it was what fascinated me. But there was one thing that I couldn't grasp. What I couldn't grasp was, why do I feel that I am here? That I am me? This was my body and I understood the processes that ran my body. You understand what I'm saying? This is my body and I understand how my body works. I understand how my body works. I understand how my blood circulates. I understand how my organs work. I understand how the food I eat is digested by my digestive system. All my, 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 because I couldn't stop feeling that I'm here. What I didn't understand was how do I feel that my, that sense of me, that sense of self, that I couldn't understand because that they didn't teach for human biology. And guess what? They don't even teach it for psychology. Sure. So here's the thing. These are conventions, madam, right? I mean, you know, we need those conventions, right? We can't operate and function without those conventions. Life would just be very difficult to live. I understand to some extent what you mean, but of course, you know, even when it's a funeral, that's my mother's funeral because it's my mother's body, right? So do you mean from the perspective of the survivors or the perspective of the deceased? Oh, they refer it to as, as the body, yes, but whose body? They'll still have someone's body, right? Because you see, <clears throat> although now they understand that the mind doesn't work in this, they know that. I mean, science is advanced enough to understand that. There is no mind in this body, but this is still a body, and they still have an owner to that body. That's why they cry, because this is my mother's body. You know, go to a funeral, and dead body, right? Say someone's mother. You, you go into the funeral and you go, that's just a body. Slap. I promise you, next day, there'll be another coffin. <laughs> Unfortunately, you won't be able to see it. Why are they offended? Because it's just a body. You and I know it's just a body. That's just, you know, that's just stuff. Stuff, right? Dead stuff. If it were an animal, it would be in the pan right now. Or in the oven. Right? But because it's a human being, we don't do that kind of stuff. Maybe some people do. 
right? But in civilized society, we don't do that. Why, why, why you know, you, you could insult a dead body, couldn't you? That's why you go to pay last respects to a dead stuff. Then why don't you go pay respects to a dead tree? I hope you're listening to this intelligently, right? Please don't change anything. Remember, understanding, comprehension is for your Nibbana. Please live according to convention. Uh, we're not going to arrange funerals for trees. <laughs> and please don't do that at home. And don't do the other either, right? Uh, it's just a dead body now, right? Off with it. No, no. Have your funeral. Not your funeral. You can't have your funeral. Right? Whoever passes away, you know, loved ones, friends, whoever, you know, do, do whatever you need to do. But, you know, think to yourself. You know, you know, no one knows what you're thinking, right? So you can think all you like. Sometimes you might be glad that people don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> but, you know, you don't, you're not, your thinking is not uh, restricted. You're free to think. So as free thinkers, even at your mother's funeral, look at it. Look at it. Look at it. That is just dead stuff. That's dead stuff. That's just muscle, dead muscle, tissue, dead tissue. Blood, dead blood. Bones, dead bones. It's just dead stuff. No different to a dead tree. It's just a carcass. But as you look at it, you can't stop feeling that it's your mother that is dead. Oh. You can't stop that feeling. That is why the gates start to open. That is why. Because my mother is dead. You can't, you can't, you know, all of a sudden get this feeling after your mother dies. You have to be able to understand this while she's alive. Because the thing is this, you know, even dead or alive, this is just stuff. This is just stuff. I'm not saying that there is no such thing as a mother. This is where we have to be very careful. I'm not saying that there is no such thing as a mother. There is. Otherwise, why would I ask you to look after her and take care of her and make sure that she understands the Dhamma? Hmm? Otherwise, what I said earlier does not match with what I say now, right? I can't, I, I can't be of two levels of understanding in the same sermon. So yes, there is mother, there is father. That is Vipaka. Through Vipaka, there is such a thing as a mother, there is such a thing as a father, there is such a thing as a Buddha, there is such a thing as an Arahant. That is all Vipaka. I'm talking about the sense of self, which is nothing to do with mother or father. She is your mother, not because you have a sense of self. She is your mother because she physically gave birth to you. She is your father because she, he physically gave birth to you. That is a Vipaka process. There's a process that makes one your mother. There's a process that makes one your father. There's a process that makes you feel that there is a self there. 
there's a self here. That is the only process we are trying to bring to a stop. Not the process of being a mother, not a process of being a father. We don't need to stop any of those things. Imagine this, right? Someone conceives, a woman conceives, then she gets to listen to the Dhamma, right? And on the same day, she becomes an Arahant. Is she no longer going to bring a child into this world? She will. She is, yeah. She's going to bring a child. She's going to go through labor and she will deliver her child. Because that's a process. That process was not stopped by her listening to the Dhamma. Listening to the Dhamma only transforms the way you think. The way you think has nothing to do with how your reproductive system works. That is, the, that is a mental thing. This is a physical thing. Mentally, you will feel that you are, you are a self and she is a self and that is what is going to create that emotional bond. There is a duty, there is a responsibility. Those bonds are there, but not an emotional bond. An emotional bond is wholly down to this mental fabrication. You know this because if you identify the wrong person as your mother, you still have that emotional bond with them. Through Vipaka, they are not your mother. Through Vipaka, they are not your father. But that emotional bond stays. So that proves to you, doesn't it, that that is not a Vipaka process. This emotional bond thing, it's how you conceive it. Meaning it's a mental fabrication. So here's what I, where I want to bring you before we conclude for today. Let's, as I say, you know, take one step at a time. Where I want to leave you today with, start to think about parts of, the parts that constitute your body. From head to toe, take one piece at a time. This is, this is meditation. This is meditation. You don't need to be sitting somewhere or stood somewhere or sleep, you know, whatever posture matters not because meditation is a mental activity. Otherwise, you know, if you fall ill one day and you can't get out of bed, you know, can your mother not meditate now because she's lying flat on her bed? She can because it does not matter how the body is. It's the mind that does the meditation. Meditation is contemplation. Contemplation on the truth. So take bits of your body mentally, right? And ask yourself the question, what function does it serve? What is its purpose? Is it here to be mine? Is the heart in this body for me to circulate blood or is it there to circulate blood? What is this, what is the added advantage? What is the value add of this sense of belonging? Is there any value in it? I want you to be convinced that this self of belonging, bringing it now into this body that you have, that you walk around in, this suit that you walk around in, right? This sense of belonging gives you absolutely nothing except for the sense of fear and grief. Each part that constitutes your body will serve its function. For now, I'll permit you to think that you choose which functions to make use of. That's okay. Let's go with that for now. But you can't choose to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Therefore, it's not your slave and you're not its master. It does not surrender or answer to every wish, whim or fancy of yours. It does not do that. Because all it can do is what the causes allow it to do. 
Therefore, it is a product, a child, a manifestation of the process of cause and effect. Start to see the entire body. Whenever you get a moment in the next week or so, start to look at your entire body as a series of cause and effect entities that are in unison with each other. So they work with each other. So the moment you bring your food to your mouth, you know, your mouth opens. Because that's what mouths do. They open and they close. You'll think, no, but Swamina, see, I can choose not to. See? Are you sure? Do you know, I can trigger a part of your brain with, with your, without your permission. If I were to trigger that part of the brain, you can't stop from salivating. You can't stop yourself from opening your mouth. Because that is how a mouth opens. Not because you want it to open. There's a process that does that. There's a signal that is fired from part of your brain that moves to your jaw muscles that contract and allow it to open. If any part of that process didn't work, now it matters not how much you want to open your mouth, it simply won't open. So you see, it's a process of cause and effect, not whether you want or you don't want. Ah, pain is, okay, I'll answer that and, good gosh, it's 11.30, you've missed the arms round today also. You allow me to give arms to you, I mean, I'm happy with that. <laughs> pain, okay, how is it that you can stop pain by injecting, uh, what do you call them, painkiller, or some an an anesthetic, right? Anesthesis? Yeah, anesthesia. Anal? Analgesic, thank you. An analgesic, you can inject that into the person's body or you know, get them to take it through their mouth. However, the cause of uh, taking it in, you can stop pain. So how is that possible? Because it's cause and effect. Because it's cause and effect. Scientists, biologists, doctors, pain specialists, they have studied how pain works. How is it that they can study it? What is this process of, what is it they do when they actually go and study? What is this study? Yeah, they understand the process. They take pain into the lab right, and they trigger certain things and see how it works. What are the chemicals that, that are responsible for it? What are the neurotransmitters that are responsible for it? What can we stimulate? What can we use as catalysts to uh, you know, activate that process? How can we stop it? And all those things they do in the lab and they come up with either painkillers or, or, or sometimes chemicals which enhance certain, um, what do you call them, um, sensations. Yeah? So this is possible because it can be analyzed, studied, manipulated, changed, altered. How so? Because it's a process. That's why. So when something breaks, if you, you know, uh, break your arm or you sprain an ankle or whatever, there are nerve endings that get stimulated and they fire a signal. That signal travels through the axon, through the brain, through your nervous system and that triggers a part of the brain. And that signal from the brain is then converted 
to a sensation which you feel. So you identify, the mind helps you to recognize what's going on with the body. Because to the mind, these are simply stimuli that come from the outside, or just as much as your, eye, your mind can see things that come through your eyes, the mind can experience things that are felt, because this is another sense door. So the mind can see, the mind can hear, the mind can smell, the mind can taste, and the mind can feel. Physical sensations. And the mind can also think. They are mental objects. So there are six doors that bring stimuli to the mind. They are stimulants. So when they reach the mind, the mind's job now is to recognize them, to identify them. That is all the mind does. Physical suffering is real. Physical suffering is real. So there are pain receptors in your skin. There are pain receptors in your skin, but there are no pain receptors in your eyes. So there are no receptors in your eye that say, that's an ugly sight. Look away. But there are receptors in your hands, or in your, in your fingertips. Right? If you were to touch something hot, then you can feel it hot. And it, it hurts. It burns. So pain, physical pain is a real thing. The mind understands that. It perceives that. But when you say something's ugly, something doesn't smell nice, something doesn't taste nice, there are no nice taste receptors in your tongue. Last time I checked, there weren't any. There are no nice light receptors in the back of your eyes. There are no nice smell receptors in your nostrils. There's nothing like that. But there are pain receptors in most of your body. So they carry those stimuli to the brain and then the brain interprets them and conveys that signal to the mind. How that exact communication happens between the brain and the mind, we are not still sure about, but we know it happens. That's why you can do whatever you want to a dead body and it doesn't start moving or start, you know, start to react to that because there's no mind in that body now. Although the nerves are still there, the brain's still there, Sometimes it might be operational, but the mind is not there anymore, any longer. That's possible. What I'm saying is, whatever it is that we experience, whether that is pain, it's be it pleasure, right? the, the forbidden kind of pleasure, or proper pleasure. Because physical pressure, the pleasure, that is real. That feels good. That will feel good to another hunt as well. But they're not going to spend all their life doing that because it's pointless. What's the point? How long are you going to be, keep doing it? But that's why they eat, because they're hungry. That pain is real. So they'll go on arms, they'll get some food, and they'll eat it. So they don't have to suffer the pain of being hungry. Then they're thirsty, they'll take some water. When, when the scorching sun is burning them, they'll, they'll seek shelter. Because that kind of pain is real. But show them something, they're not going to look away saying, that's ugly. Because there are no ugly sight receptors in your retina. It is mental. That's all mental. That mental suffering is what we are trying to deal with here. Not the physical suffering. Because we don't need to worry about the physical suffering because it's very short-lived. It's very short-lived. You only have to endure that for the most part of, what, 70 years. After that, you can't even feel things. Half of your nervous system is going to stop working anyway.
And after a while, they're going to have to chop your leg off somewhere. So, you know, anything that used to happen from there down is not going to bother you anymore. Right? Maybe one of your limbs fall off, then anything that happened to that limb is not going to happen anymore. They cut your appendix off, so that's not going to hurt anymore. See? Take out one of your kidneys, and that's not going to cause you any trouble anymore. Right? So this, you know, just starts breaking apart and falling apart. Right? So we're not really concerned about the pain that this body has to endure. However, we don't, we don't subject it to pain. There's a reason for that. Because that gets in the way of us practicing the Dhamma. When your focus is on pain, 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 right? it just gets, it's just so overwhelming. It, it just consumes you again. And that, when it consumes you, now you are not free to think about the things you ought to be thinking. That is the reason for that. When you experience pain, all you need to think about is cause and effect. But it's difficult to do that, isn't it? When you're really hungry, when you've got a thorn stuck in your foot, cause and effect. <laughs> no, the first thing you want to do is get, the, get it out of your foot, right? Because it hurts. Right? So, when that is why in the Buddha's ministry, monks are allowed the four requisites. Four requisites being food, shelter, arms and robes. These four things are necessary for one's practice of the Dhamma. In other words, to understand that all of this, both body and mind, are a series of cause and effect entities. To understand that, you need to be in some state of comfort. Not luxury, not extravagant pleasures, nothing like that. You, know, you just need to be, your hunger has to be sated. You can't be you know, hungry all the time and contemplate on the Dhamma. You can't be thirsty all the time and contemplate the Dhamma. You can't be sick and poor because you know, after that you'll be in bed asleep or you know, a, a, a bad back. It's very difficult to contemplate on the Dhamma. You have no idea how much we try and protect our Swaminuasas and Anagarikas and Anagarikas when they come here. Because we don't want them to start suffering physically because that gets in the way. That doesn't mean that we keep them in palaces and we sleep them in soft quilt beds. No. They're perfectly fine either sleeping on the floor or on a, or on a, on a, you know, a thin mattress. That's fine. When we first came to this monastery, we slept, we slept on planks of wood. That's fine. We fell asleep. That's all that mattered. Right? So that's, that's perfectly fine. We're not, I'm not talking about luxury. There's nothing wrong per se with luxury. The point with luxury is, for a, from a perspective of someone who wants to practice the Dhamma, is it's pointless. That pursuit is pointless. Because pleasing this body for how long? There's another important, very important, significant thing that we need to do in the time that we have, which is also very short. Yeah? So if I invest that time in seeking pleasures which are real, they're real, physical pleasure is real, if I spend my time seeking those pleasures, I'm just wasting my valuable time when I could be using that to help save myself from this mental suffering. Because the mental suffering remains. Even as a deva, as a brahma, the mental suffering still remains. So that's why I'm not concerned about this body beyond a certain extent. Up until that point, yes, I will make sure that this is fed. I have a responsibility, as we talked about, I think, last week or the week before. There's a responsibility for the mind to look after this, keep it safe, right? keep it watered and fed and sheltered and clothed and you know, uh, free of uh, illness. So there's a responsibility for that. But that's where we draw the line.
So, what I want you to do between now and the next time you come back, take parts of your body, I mean, don't take it out of your body, right? Contemplate in your mind, think about the various parts of your body and think about its function. It's here to serve a function. You don't need to now go and study anatomy and find out all the different parts of your body. You know, you know you have a few things, right? You may not know what's all, you know, the bits and pieces inside. You don't have to worry about that. Just because if, remember, it can be quite appealing. And I mean, it was for me when I was a student of human biology, I just couldn't stop myself. It was so fascinating. I just kept on digging, 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 digging until I, you know, got to the, to the very, you know, whatever I could learn about the human body, I did back then. I can't remember half of the stuff now, but I did whatever knowledge was available back then. I was so interested and so fascinated by how this whole machine works like this. What I'm saying is don't make this a pursuit of how the body works. As in, don't go and research. You don't need to research. You don't need the internet for this. You don't need to go to the library and pick up an encyclopedia to find out about the body works. That's not what I'm saying. Just take something simple, nose. It serves a function. So it serves a function. This nose on any other body would do just the same. These eyes in any other body would do just the same. Hair, skull, brain, hands, legs, you, know, you can see most of your body. They do functions just the same as it would on someone else's body. So therefore, is it right for me to say that these are mine or are they simply here to serve a function, a purpose? But you can't stop yourself from feeling that they're mine. And therefore, what are the consequences of that? Fear and grief. Reflect on that. This is what I want you to focus on. This is your meditation for next week. Okay? So, find time. I mean, you don't need to find special time for this while you're going up and down, you know, going to work or, you know, traveling back home. If you're not the driver, if you're the driver, don't do this. If you're the driver, please keep your eyes on the road and focus on oncoming traffic. You can look at oncoming traffic and think to yourself, oh, that's also cause and effect. <laughs> yes, but if you're not careful, another cause and effect will manifest. <laughs> yeah? So, you all happy with what I've asked you to do? You all understand what, what we, we want to try and do for next week? Yeah? Okay, so let's do that. And then, we'll, I promise you, I'll, I'll get you to where we need to get to. And, you know, you will begin to understand everything. Everything. Everything that's getting in the way of your happiness. That, I'll, that much I'll promise you. If you keep coming, listen to the talks, I will do everything in my power to help you understand. Because if it's not me, someone else will come here. And they'll continue. All we need is the truth. It doesn't have to come from a certain someone. All we need is the truth. The best person to have given this truth to you was the Buddha. He's not here now. It doesn't mean the message has stopped. Right? So it keeps on passing. You have to become part of this lineage and pass it down to your parents, which you have a duty, to your friends, to other members of your family, to colleagues, to other human beings. Help them free themselves from suffering. Because what you do to others, you do unto yourself. Alright, so let's transfer the merits for today.
and bring the sermon to a close. <coughs> okay. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, upasakas, and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Zipitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to Guru Swami Nuhanse and our teachers and all the other monks resident at the monastery as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them and may through the power of these merits if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May they, may to the power of these mates, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer these mates that we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical or mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer to the devas, brahmas, spirits, and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddhasasana. Let us transfer these maids to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these maids they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been our families, friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and to those who have helped, supported and assisted us in any way, shape or form they could. Let us transfer these merits to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, and to may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoicing in these merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer these merits to all those who lost their lives to natural calamities such as the tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing ones. 
reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in sansara let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them may by the power of these merits if any of them have been born in the woeful plains redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plains may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds fulfill the meritorious deeds fulfill the noble eightfold path and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana sadhu 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 let us all resolve that may through the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahatuns and arahatun nuances and arahatun nuances on this blessed land and finally may to the power of all the merits we have all acquired today you and i and everyone who's helped make this program a success become an arahatun nuance and arahatun nuance in this very life itself and in the era of the gautama supreme buddha itself sadhu 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 and the blessings of the noble triple gem be with you all <clears throat> The members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. Raga ginnen midetnva Desha ginnen midetnva Moha ginnen midetnva Nibbana parama sukhayen Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Mamada Siyalu Loka Siyalu Satnvayo Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnva Raga Gini Niveva Deshagini Niveva Mohagini Niveva Nivansapalabeva 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 තුරුවන්ගේ සුවිසි අනන්ත මහා ගුණ බලෙන් සීලු ලෝක සීලු සත්‍යයෝම නිබාන පරම සුඛයෙන් සුගත දරුවෙක් වා සාදු සාදු සාදු